All right, so we are beginning Unit 4 of Parables of Jesus, and Unit 4 is Unexpected Savior. Jesus is not what you expect, and Jesus was not what people expected in the days when Jesus walked on earth as God in the flesh. They anticipated that the Messiah and his forerunner were going to come in a certain manner, and he just didn't fit the bill of the expectations of man. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, he's so much better than what people expect. But you know, if you have walked with Jesus for any length of time in a deep manner, when God speaks to you, it's different than your own idea. He doesn't do things the way that man does things. He doesn't think about things or see things the way that man sees things or the way that the world does things. If you had the idea that following Jesus was going to make everything in your life go smoothly and wonderfully for you, you soon discover that he is unexpected. He's going to lead you on a path that will test your sincerity of devotion to him. He's going to lead you on a path to your own taking up of your cross. He is not what people expect their God and their Savior to be. So in this unit, we're going to look at parables that really express that so that we can learn about what Jesus spoke about himself and how the people responded correctly or incorrectly based on their own expectations in contrast to who Jesus really is and how Jesus really did things. So the first context that we're entering into is that John the Baptist is in prison, and he sent messengers to Jesus because even John the Baptist was starting to have doubts. Jesus was so not what even John the Baptist was expecting that John the Baptist wanted to make sure he had the right guy. Now remember, John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus and said, this is the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that God told me the Spirit is going to descend like a dove, and this is the one that the Spirit did that to. So this is the one. This is the Messiah. So John had proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, but now he's in prison, about to die, and he's starting to have some doubts. So he sent messengers to say to Jesus, are you the one, or are we waiting for somebody else? But Jesus did not rebuke John for his doubts. Instead, he answered according to the word of God. He did not exalt himself, but he answered according to the scriptures. He said, look at the works. The blind receive their sight. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. The lame are leaping. So, you know, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, Jesus was quoting various prophecies from the Old Testament about the work of the Messiah. So he just pointed and he said, I'm doing the works of my father. I'm doing the works of the Messiah. Look with your eyes and see what is happening. You judge for yourself. But he also said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He, he's saying, I might not be what you expected because I'm here showing mercy rather than coming with the wrath and judgment and destruction of the world. I'm here and I'm showing mercy. So blessed are you if you don't stumble over the mercy and the love of God 
that I am bringing to the world through this ministry that is fulfilling what the scriptures said the Messiah was going to do. So at that, John's messengers went back to talk to John, and Jesus began to speak in parables about John and about that generation. So we're going to start with Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So a reed is something flimsy that can be easily bent. A reed is something that any wind that blows by, the reed bows down in the wind. It is easily influenced by every passing phase, every passing trend. It bows down in the wind as it blows by. So a person that would be doing this like a reed easily shaken by the wind would be someone who is insecure or uncertain or easily led, easily persuaded in their opinions by other people. And you probably know people like this. Whoever is in the room with them, they agree with what that person is saying. They don't really know what they believe. And I've heard the expression, if you don't believe anything, you'll believe everything. It makes you very susceptible to just a strong personality comes along and you bow down and you're influenced very easily by them. So Jesus is saying, did you think that the forerunner of the Messiah was just going to be easily persuaded? by the winds that are blowing through the world right now, by the winds of teaching, by the winds of people's opinions, John the Baptist was not a wimp. He boldly declared the coming wrath of God to a brood of vipers and was ready for the Messiah to come with war. As a matter of fact, that's probably why John had his doubts is because he was so ready for the Messiah to come with war. He was prepared for war. He was talking to everybody like boot camp. We got to get ready for the Messiah to come. John was not a wimp. He was trying to whip everybody into shape so that they could be received by Messiah at his coming. Well, Jesus continues, Luke 7, 25, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. And so a man of a luxurious lifestyle would be unwilling to get dirty and was unfamiliar with the needs of the common people. But John the Baptist, he was wearing camel hair. He was eating locusts. He was not wearing the latest designer clothing of the day. And John the Baptist was not working in the palace or the White House or the government governing authority buildings. He was not sidling himself up to the king's court or the political leaders of the day, giving them really nice prophetic words all the time, encouraging them, making them feel so good about themselves. No, that's the opposite of what John the Baptist was doing. John the Baptist, he lived in the wilderness. He was rebuking the political leaders for their corruption and their hypocrisy. So Jesus is like, did you really think that the the forerunner of the Messiah was going to come and try to align himself with the political leaders of this day upon which God is going to bring judgment? You've got this backwards. This is not what you are expecting. So Jesus continues. This is Luke 7 verse 26 and onward. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? 
Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So I know that's a scripture portion, but I'm just reading through that to give us the context of Jesus going into another parable. I'm not going to break that down part by part because we're really focusing on the parables here. But when Jesus said, did you go out to see a prophet? He's not speaking in parables. John the Baptist is the last of the old covenant style of prophets announcing that the Messiah is coming. And Jesus even said that there is no one born of women that is greater than John. That's a very high compliment. But I'm giving that there just so you see that the tax collectors, the very people who should have been terrified about Messiah's coming, they were overjoyed. Why? Because God was showing mercy. And they had been baptized with the baptism of John for the repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. But the Pharisees and the lawyers, this was not how they thought it was going to go. And so they rejected John. They rejected Jesus because John and Jesus did not bow down to them or agree with or cooperate with their leadership as they were leading the people astray and away from God. So that's just the context. We're going to keep going. Jesus has another parable that he's sharing. This is Luke 7, now verse 31. To what then shall I I compare the people of this generation. So he's saying, basically, you got to pick this up in context. He's saying, if John the Baptist is there's none greater than him of all born of women, then to what shall I compare you? If he's that, then what are you? To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So again, there's a lot in there. John the Baptist and Jesus were not what the people were expecting from the Messiah. The people, especially the religious people, religious people tend to think they've got God right where they want him. They know how to get God to respond. Okay, well, if I fast a little bit or maybe even for three days, then God will do this for me. Or if I do enough good deeds in the right way, then God will do that for me. Or, okay, like they think they know. Okay, we're going to play the flute and then you're going to dance. Oh, we're going to play a funeral song and then you're going to weep. We know how this works. We know how to get you to respond to us. They had the whole thing backwards. It's like Isaiah said, you've got this upside down. Are you the clay or are you the potter? You think you get to tell the potter what to make you into? Nope. 
That's not how this works. So John the Baptist and Jesus just didn't respond in the way that they were expecting based on all of their rituals, their traditions, their promptings, and all the other shenanigans that they were putting on to perform and get God to respond the way that they anticipated. And Jesus explains the parable right in the giving of this example. He says, John the Baptist, he came with an ascetic lifestyle. He wore camel hair clothes, a locust diet. He he was living living a very different kind of lifestyle, but they accused him of having a demon. Well, Jesus, he came on the opposite side of that. He was not living an ascetic lifestyle. He was eating and drinking, and he was even eating with sinners and tax collectors. And, you know, we already went through the parable in this course about why Jesus said, you can't fast while the wedding feast is on. I'm here to have a feast. I'm here to have a party. Well, John the Baptist was not having a party. He was getting ready for the one to come. Jesus is is the one to come. So he was throwing a party. I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. But they accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. And they accused him of being a friend of sinners, that how could he show mercy? How could he hang out with those people who God would never possibly approve of in their own mind? Well, the zinger here at the end, the parable point, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by all her children. That means that you can't always judge by the short-term perspective of what you think you are perceiving with your eye about a person's life. There's a proverb that says, do not be quick to judge your neighbor or bring your neighbor to court based on what you see with your eye. Wisdom is proved over the long-term outcome of a person's choices and how those choices appear in the light of eternity. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is walking in the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Whether anyone else understood what he was doing or not, he knew that he would be justified in the end. He knew that John the Baptist would be justified in the end. He didn't care that the people were not agreeing with the way that he was going about things. He was going to continue on in his mission no matter what anyone said or if anyone ever agreed with him at all. So here are some of the further considerations. The people and the religious leaders did not know what to expect of the coming Messiah. They didn't understand from their interpretation of the scriptures when Jesus, when God came in the flesh, they accused God of evil. They accused the forerunner, the Elijah that they were expecting to come, accused him of having a demon. As much as they could quote scripture and as much as they thought they knew about God, they didn't understand God or his ways at all. And also, we cannot be quick to judge based on what our eye sees of another person's life or their approach to following God. Whether or not they have been serving God will be revealed by the larger outcome of their way of life and at the resurrection. The book of Hebrews says that we should consider our leaders and their faith, imitate their faith, and consider the outcome of their way of life. So we can observe other people going through their own journey of God, But don't be so quick to judge because the outcome is what God is after and the final outcome will be revealed at the resurrection. Jesus also, don't miss this, he said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
So, you know, if you think that Jesus should only come for the really smart people and the really talented people and the really righteous people, and you think that that's why he chose you, you are confused. Those who stumble over Jesus showing mercy to the poor or to sinners in need of a Savior rather than judgment of God and war, or people who are offended that Jesus died on a cross in spite of his innocence. How could a righteous God, how could God allow that to happen to his own son who was innocent? These things cause offense and stumbling in the lives and the hearts and the minds of those who cannot get their mind fixed around the ways of God. Blessed is the one who is not offended by the way that Jesus obeyed the Father or by the way that John the Baptist proclaimed the absolute demand for repentance. Hallelujah. Okay, so our context continues. It's the same day Jesus has just finished explaining about John the Baptist and about this generation, and now he's been invited to dine in the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And while he's there, a sinful woman, a woman with a reputation, a sinful woman comes in and washes Jesus' feet. She has an alabaster jar full of oil. She wipes Jesus' feet, with her tears, with her hair. She kisses his feet. She anoints his feet with this expensive, expensive oil. And the Pharisees were deeply, deeply offended that Jesus allowed this because of the type of woman that she was. As a quick side note, this is not Mary at Bethany. That's later in the series of events of the life of Jesus. This is a different woman than that. So there are two different women in the Gospels that pour oil over Jesus, and this is one of them, but not the other. I just try to bring that clarification. Well, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to tell a parable, and he addresses the parable to the man named Simon. He's not talking to Simon Peter. He's talking to the Pharisee named Simon, whose house he is in. The Pharisee named Simon invited Jesus into his house to have a meal. That's where they are, and Jesus addresses Simon. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he begins to tell a parable. And this parable is found only in the book of Luke. So here we go. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. And then Jesus explains the parable. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. 
Okay, so breaking that down, a debtor who owes a great sum of money will probably be exceedingly thankful when the debt is forgiven. If you owed someone a lot of money and they forgave you, you would really love that person. You would be ecstatic. You would be really thrilled and you would really like them a lot. But a debtor who is forgiven a small sum, you know, somebody lends you five bucks and they're like, ah, eh, just keep it. You know, you're like, all right, but you're not going to be so exuberant about it. Well, Simon the Pharisee, he missed it, along with many of the other Pharisees and religious leaders. He did not consider that he needed much mercy or forgiveness because he had set out to live a holy life. He was a good person. He had done things right. So he really didn't grasp the depth of his own sin, the depth of his own need for forgiveness. He did not see that he and the sinful woman were actually at the same level in the sight of God. Simon dined with Jesus as his host, as his equal, as his, well, Rabbi, let me hear what you have to say, and I'll evaluate it to see if it aligns with my doctrine. Sound familiar? Simon had Jesus over to his house, hosted him as a guest, probably gave him, you know, a decent seat. But at best, the the greatest level of humility that Simon most likely demonstrated if he wasn't elevating himself above Jesus to judge and discern his doctrine to see if God's doctrine agreed with him. Instead, maybe there's the possibility that he humbled himself enough to present himself as a student, to learn from Jesus. And even Simon Simon's response, he said, yes, teacher, tell me, when Jesus said, I have something to say to you. Whereas the woman, she didn't even speak. She didn't necessarily consider that she was worthy to be in this place. She came in, knelt at Jesus' feet as his servant, in absolute willingness to do the lowest and most despicable job for him, washing his feet. And not only did she wash his feet with water, but with her tears. And not only did she wash his feet and dry them off with a towel, but she dried them off with her hair. The scripture says that a woman's hair is her glory. So she used her glory to clean the feet of Jesus to serve him. She had been forgiven and she was ecstatic about it. Simon was also receiving mercy, but eh, you know, you said I could keep the five bucks. That's nice. He didn't really understand the depths of his own need for mercy. So the parable point is those who are forgiven much love much. We said parables, they have sometimes a zinger at the end, and Jesus gives that zinger. Those who are forgiven much love much, but those who are forgiven little love little. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is forgiving. He's showing mercy to a woman, to a sinner who could never possibly atone for her sins. Jesus is also showing mercy to a self-righteous Pharisee who could never possibly atone for their sins. So the further considerations here, this woman's act of devotion and love would have been regarded as salacious, provocative, socially inappropriate, and unacceptable. For a woman to take off her veil, expose her hair, for a woman to let down her hair from the bun or the braid that it was most likely in, absolutely socially unacceptable. It's not surprising that the Pharisees and the people in the room were so 
<gasps> horrified and offended by what she was doing. But Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knew that it was an act of gratitude and devotion, that it was not inappropriate, that it was an act of humility, of her lowering herself out of love and devotion in response to the mercy that he was showing to her. See, but the self-righteous feel very little need for God's mercy. Instead, they feel like they have God where they want him. They know how to get God to respond. They have little actual love for God, and therefore they also have little mercy for anyone else, and they don't have the ability to discern correctly. They're so busy judging everyone else by the standard they have set up for themselves that they're judging everyone else, and they see the mercy of God as something offensive. If we find it difficult to be thankful to God for the mercy that he has shown us, it is because we are self-righteous. We think that we have earned or deserved whatever blessings are in our life because of our own goodness, because of our own righteousness, because of our own strength, because of our own skills and abilities. We completely fail to see God's mercy and loving kindness to us, and that God is the one that puts the very breath in our lungs, that without God's permission, we wouldn't have woken up this morning. You don't have the right to live unless God allows you to live another day. But self-righteous people don't see it that way. They think they did it themselves. And they might give God a little acknowledgement here and there, but even that is usually for show and not from the heart. So what's the big picture of all of these pieces put together? All the way from John the Baptist, he's not a wimp. He's not here to bow down to every wind that's blowing by and all the latest trends and crazes that are passing through and the latest doctrines of man that are passing through the circle of rabbis at the time. John the Baptist, he was not politically motivated, wasn't trying to warm up to the political leaders and get himself some designer clothes and hang out in the palaces. Jesus, he was hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. He was drinking. He was having a party. Now, he wasn't drinking to excess. He was not getting drunk. Don't get me wrong. Don't misquote me. But Jesus was celebrating. As we talked about in a prior parable, he was here to have a feast. Well, all of this, Jesus, his kingdom, it didn't make any sense to the people. He was unexpected. He was unexpected by the sinners, but they received him with joy. But he was unexpected by the religious people who thought they had God figured out. But it turns out that they didn't. Because at the very moment that God is showing mercy and compassion to sinners who need the mercy the most, they were offended rather than rejoicing like heaven does over one sinner who repents. Mm -hmm. 